This is a message from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. Grace Church is affiliated with Sovereign Grace Ministries. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. The speaker for this message is Craig Cabanis, the senior pastor of Grace Church. Well, last week we looked at verses 1 through 3, and here's what we found. We found that the Bible teaches that it's possible to have incredible spiritual gifts. I mean, like speaking heavenly, a heavenly language or having enough faith to move a mountain or to understand all mysteries. It's possible to have an incredible spiritual gift, but not be loving. And so we're, we're nothing. We found out from last week in verse 3 that it's possible to do dramatic works. I mean, it's possible to uh, give away all your stuff to poor people. It's possible to even die a martyr's death. And yet, if it's not motivated by love, it is nothing. And so what we found out was that love really is the barometer of our spirituality. We can have spiritual experiences. We can talk with spiritual lingo. We can use all the right terminology and such. But if we don't have love, it's meaningless. It's the barometer of our godliness. You know, we can do good things. We can read the Bible. We can give sacrificially. We can serve and help others. But if we're not loving in our motive as Christ loves us, it it doesn't matter. So we saw that love really is the measure. Love is what counts in our lives. And it's what counts in a church as well. Paul is talking to a whole group of people. He's been talking about how they relate with one another as a church. Does this person love that person and this person and that person? Are they a loving unit like a human body? Do they function together like a body or are they separated? And so love is really the measure for the church as well. We think of all kinds of external things that that we evaluate churches by. How big is it? What programs do they have? Who's their leader? All these kinds of things. But it seems like in the Bible, love is the primary way that we evaluate a church that preaches sound doctrine. Obviously, the church needs to believe and teach the Bible. But Having said that, then it's love and how we walk that out that really counts. And so in the passage we're looking at today, starting in verse 4, love is patient and kind. What we have here is a description of love. It's not really a definition, but it's a description of love. And what Paul does is he takes love and uh, he describes it using uh, personification. Shout out to my eighth grade English teacher there. I was listening. Um, personification, which is to take a an inanimate object or a concept or an idea and make it human-like. So he describes how love would act, how love would behave, what love would do, what love wouldn't do. He's treating love like a person. And he's saying that love's not just an idea, but it's an action. All of these in the original text are verbs. And so he's talking about active um, active ways that love is expressed. Like 1 John 3.18 says, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And so this these verbs, these, this expression, love acts patiently, love acts kindly, it does not envy, it does not act uh, arrogantly. These, these descriptions form a composite when they're together. And they really form a composite of the life of Jesus. 
They describe what Jesus is like. One author said that uh, this really is a picture of Jesus. He said, right, uh, Paul is not writing as an artist, but a photographer, and Christ is the original. It's a picture of what Christ is like. And because Christ is the head and we are his body, we want to resemble the head. The children want to represent and resemble the Father. And uh, so the most striking resemblance between Jesus and his people, between the Father and his children, is to be that of love. So like, what I'd like to do is just walk through these, and I'm going to slow down here today. We've kind of been moving fast. When we get to 14, we're going to take some chunks on a Sunday at a time. We'll move through chapter 14 faster. But I, I thought it might be helpful to meditate a little bit on what this description of love really is. The first thing he says is this, verse 4. Love is patient. Love is patient. I don't often quote the King James Version, but I I think the way the King James Version expresses this is powerful. The King James says it calls it charity instead of love, but same thing. It says, love suffereth long. Love suffereth long. You hear the action there. Love is long-suffering. Not short-suffering. It is long-suffering. Love is forbearing. Love waits patiently. Love is not short-tempered. Love is long-tempered. That's what love is like, the Scripture says here. Patience has at its core the idea of waiting. And that's why it's not really that popular of a virtue. Who wants to wait Who wants to wait, especially during difficult circumstances? The patience here in view is not patience just with circumstances. It's probably more patience with people. And the reason we know that is because all of chapter 12 is how the church gets along. How does the body function? How do the hand and foot relate together in the body? Paul's not talking about generic uh, patience while suffering. He talks about that in Romans, be patient in suffering. But here he's talking about really patience with people, forbearing with people, particularly when someone has wronged us to express patience to them particularly when someone's not changing at the pace we would like them to change, to express patience to them in waiting, that is love, forbearing, long-suffering, waiting on the Lord. That's exactly how God relates with us. It's exactly. Think about the parable of the prodigal son. The son runs off, disgraces the father, disrespects the father, goes and turns from everything that he had learned growing up that would honor the Lord and lives a, a entirely different lifestyle, blowing his inheritance in sinful pursuits. And the picture in that parable that Jesus tells is when the son comes to his senses and he is coming back home, there's this picture of the father out in front waiting on his son to come home. The patient love of the father. Patience towards those who are doing the wrong thing. That's love. 
extended as God has extended it to us. God has been gracious with us. God has been long-suffering with us. Why? Because God loves us. The reason God has put up with so much stuff from us is because that is a function of His love for us. That love is patient. It's long-suffering. He is for, he's, he forbears with us and He calls us having been long-suffering with us, having been patient with us, He calls us to then turn and treat others with the same love He's extended to us. So He's not just saying, you know, grit your teeth and put up with a lot of junk. He's saying, think about how God in His love has been patient. And then turn and, and act towards others with that same kind of patience. So if you're married, patience with your spouse who's doing the same thing over again, who's not changing on the timetable that you would like them to change, just consider the perfect Father in heaven. We didn't change on His timetable, which was perfection now. None of us changed on that timetable, and yet He loved us and is patient with us. Your child, patience with our children if you have kids, patience with your friends, Patience with your two-year-old. Patience with your teenager. Teenager, patience with your parents who are not perfect. Patience with your extended family. Patience with those in your small group. Patience with those in the church. Patience comes into play when we interact with people we're different than, for sure. People who have different gifts, different ideas, different preferences in the church. We're called to walk together in unity, but that will require extending patience to people that are different than me. And one of the things we find out when we extend patience is sometimes it's not the other person that's wrong. Sometimes it's me. Sometimes I'm being patient, waiting for another person to change, and you know what happens? God changes me in that process. If we don't stick around long and if long enough and if we don't have relationships meaningful enough that we are called to extend patience to people, then we will never get to express love to people like God has expressed to us. Sometimes people just bounce around church to church, just sitting in a meeting and leaving. And if you're new here, we're and maybe you're bouncing and trying to find a place, I'm not criticizing you. We're really glad that you're here. And uh, pray that you will land somewhere, that God will call you where he wants you to be in a church. But sometimes people just do that. They just kind of go and attend a meeting and then go over here and attend a meeting and then go over here and attend a meeting. And here's what's sad about that. The people in that kind of situation never get to know people well enough to experience their humanity to then be able to express long-suffering toward them and with them, which is expressing the love of Christ as he expressed with us. That's a beautiful thing. So we can kind of think of patience as, oh, that gets on my nerves. But it's an opportunity. I'm not just trying to do a positive self-help talk here. It really is an opportunity to forbear as God was forbearing with me. For he showed love to me, and I'm able, called, to show that love to others as well. Love is patient. Love is kind. That's the next thing he says. Love is kind. Kindness can seem like a pretty thin, sort of a wimpy virtue, really. I mean, if we're honest, I'm not saying that's true of the Bible, but we kind of think that way. Kind. What does it mean to be kind? We think of kind as just sort of like concrete niceness. 
It's just be nice, do something nice. That's what it means to be kind. Did you know that this last Friday, which was the 17th of February, was National Random Acts of Kindness Day? Did you know that? A few heads shook. Most of you didn't know that. You unkind people. You had no idea what you missed on Friday. So it's a day where we sort of think of something nice to do for another person. And so that seems, kindness seems like something really manageable. Like, do I even need the Holy Spirit's help for that one? Just smile. Just let someone go first. I mean, it just seems like being kind of nice. I'm getting, you know, I'm at the coffee shop. Can I pick you up something to go? It's pretty simple. It's just being a nice person. We live in a land of nice people. I don't know about, if you've lived anywhere else and moved to Dallas, people here are nice. I moved from California where people are not necessarily nice. Some of you are from the Northeast where they're definitely not nice. <laughs> and here's the reality is that unbelievers here are nicer than Christians in the Northeast and in California and places like that. It's just a nice culture. People are just really nice. They're not to themselves. Oftentimes they'll get up in your business pretty easy and just, hey, there's warm and gushing. And, and if you've moved from somewhere else and you've gone to like the grocery store and the checkout line and they're all, hi, how you doing? And you're kind of like, whoa, what? I don't even know you. And like you wanted to get in my car and go for a ride or something. I just, just bag my groceries. That's how people act in other places because they're not used to the niceness that is in Dallas. People are nice. Not all people are nice here because some people move from other places and those are the not nice people. <laughs> So we kind of think kindness is just being nice. Listen, an unbeliever can manage that. <clears throat> there are unbelievers who are nicer than me, so I'm, I'm not pointing a finger at anybody here. The, niceness is not what he's talking about. He's, when he talks about kindness, he's talking about something that is radical. Radical. Listen to this verse. Here's how kindness is described in Ephesians. Ephesians 4.32. Be kind, there's the word, to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Be kind to others. Be tender-hearted to them. What does that look like? It's the way that Christ forgave you. How did Christ forgive me? He gave His life for me. He was kind to me by dying as my substitute. He was kind for me as dying in my place. He was kind for me by giving His very life to forgive me showering me with love that cost everything. That's kindness. Kindness is salvation in the Bible. The loving kindness of God expressed to us. He forgave us at the ultimate cost. So to show kindness to someone means that I relate to them as God related to me. It may mean letting them go first. It may mean picking them up something at the store as a nice gesture. It may mean being friendly. It may mean being thoughtful. Those can all be expressions. But it's rooted in a sacrificial type of love that Jesus showed to us. And He loves it when we take that love and demonstrate it to others. It's a tangible act of love. In Ephesians 4 there, it's forgiving. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted. Forgiving one another as God forgave you. So it's forgiving those who sin against us. It's having a tender heart, not a soft heart, not a hard heart towards others. A soft, being a soft-hearted person towards other people. It's meeting a need. It's taking an interest in another person as Christ has taken the ultimate interest in us, showering us with love. It's encouraging another person. It's praying for another person. 
Charles Spurgeon said, you can do me no greater kindness than pray for me. It's praying for someone. It's thinking about someone who doesn't know the Lord. And the kindest thing we can do to an unbeliever is to tell them the good news of what Jesus has done for us. That's kindness, is to tell them how they can have their sins forgiven, be rescued, know the Lord, walk with the Lord. Kindness. Imagine a community characterized by kindness. People who are motivated by how God has loved them and they are seeking to love others in the same way. They're forgiving as God has forgiven them. They're taking an interest. They are thinking of other people and then practically demonstrating that thoughtfulness in tangible ways. That would, that's revolutionary. Those really motivated by the love of God. In the second century, Tertullian wrote the following. He said that the pagans, the unbelieving pagans, looked at Christians. It was a pretty new religion at that point. But looked at Christians and called them not Christiani, which would be Christians. They called them Christiani, which is a word that meant, which is the word that, that, uh, that means kindness. So they called them not Christians. They called them the kindness people. They were the people about kindness. That's what was reflected in their life. Not mere niceness, but a genuine, kind-hearted, soft-hearted care for others. Love is like that. Patience is passive. Kindness is active. Love expressed as Jesus has expressed expressed it to us. Number three, it says love does not envy. Verse four, love does not envy. Envy. Now, there's going to be several negatives here. Does not envy, not arrogant, not rude, not insist on its own way. So he's now going to show not only what love does, but what love avoids as well. Christian love motivated by the gospel is not an envying kind of love. When I envy, I'm not content with what God has provided for me. I'm not content with what God has done for me. I am looking for what God has provided someone else. I'm looking for what God has done for someone else, and I'm wishing I had that or I was that. So envy causes us to look to others in comparison and desiring what they have rather than being content with what God has done for me. And the Corinthians were this way. We just looked in chapter 12, um, like in verse 15, people compared gifts. They envied gifts. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. So they were comparing and envying. And wherever there is envy, there will be division. And he's saying real love doesn't envy what another person is or who they are or what they have. Real love actually, to the contrary, wants what's best for another person. Real love doesn't, uh, doesn't, you know, have bad feelings when another person prospers or is blessed or is used by God or is fruitful or is changed in some way. Real love rejoices in the good of another person rather than is envious of another person. That's the nature of love. It's not rivalry. It's not comparison. It is celebration with others who God, whom God is blessing. This is how we see Jesus. Jesus doesn't compare himself with others. He's not envious of others. Jesus empties himself for others. Jesus loves others. Christ serves others. There's a real interesting account in the Gospels where the disciples come back to Jesus and apparently they have been comparing themselves with others. 
in Luke 9, there's a passage where the disciples come back to Jesus. They've been out doing some kind of ministry to others, and they say this, hey, we found people, and they're casting out demons in your name, Jesus, and we told them to stop it because they weren't with us, is what he said. We told them to stop it. You know, think about that. Stop bringing relief to tormented people because you're not with us. And they told Jesus this, and Jesus said, don't stop them, in essence. He said, if they're not against us, they're for us. We're on the same team. There's not to be an envying and a comparison. Whether it's them on a different team bringing relief to needy people, or whether it's you, the, the good news is that needy people are getting relief. They're tasting salvation. They're experiencing the joy of God. That's what Jesus is about, seeing people set free. He loves people. And so it doesn't matter who the vehicle that God uses to bring relief and help and joy. It's that they get help that we celebrate. The person who envies says, why are they doing that and not me? Why do they have that gift and not me? Why do others go to them for help and not me? Whereas Jesus says, hey, if they're not for us, they're against us. If they're bringing glory to God and helping people, we're not going to envy. We celebrate. Love doesn't envy because envy is is self-focus as opposed to others' focus. Love is patient. Love is kind. The patience of God extended to us. Sometimes we talk about the patience of Job. It's really the patience of God that's the model. Patience of God, the kindness of Jesus giving his life for us, a lack of envy, but a celebration and a rejoicing with others who prosper. Next he says, love does not boast. It does not boast. Love isn't into bragging about itself. One commentator said this word boasting, it, it, it carries the notion of referring to someone who is a pompous windbag. That's what my commentators, that's what a scholar said. When a scholar's saying pompous windbag, it must be real. So he's saying it's, it's a pompous windbag. It's someone that is just talking, sharing, hearing themselves talk. He's saying love doesn't draw attention to itself. Love isn't concerned with what others think about me. So love isn't motivated by a boasting because I want you to think well of me. I want you to respect me. I want you to like me. That's boasting. That's boasting. That's announcing in brash terms or in subtle terms good things about me, comparing myself to others, looking down upon others. That can be a boasting. Putting myself forward by putting others down. That's boasting. Dropping in what I've done or who I know. That can be boasting. Letting you know how great my life is to inspire your envy or something. That is boasting. Boasting, it's putting ourselves forward. Listen, if we obeyed this commandment perfectly, if all boasting went away, I am convinced that Facebook and Twitter would be gone. Because that's a significant... And I'm on Twitter, I don't do Facebook, but I am on Twitter, so I'm not throwing rocks at people. I'm talking to myself here as well. How much of life that is displayed for everyone to see is a subtle thought of, look what I'm doing that you're not doing. Look what I'm with, who I'm with that you're not with. Look at the experience I had that you did not have. Or listen to this brilliant thought that I came up with 
and be amazed by it. Listen to the band that I know about that you don't know about, which means I'm way cooler than you. And as soon as you find out about this one, I'll be talking about a new band at that point. Look at the video I saw that you haven't seen. Look at the picture of my kids. They are way better than your kids. Way better. Look at how great my life is. I'm not putting the picture when life was a wreck, when our whole house was a wreck. It looked like a tornado came through. And it was terrible. And I said, I hate life. I don't have that picture up there. But I have the picture of the great. And by the way, I put picture, I do all this stuff. So put pictures up this great. I'm not critiquing any of that. What I'm saying is that so much of social media is a platform for me to draw attention to me. Share my thoughts, share my things so that you are impressed. Now, it can also be used as a means that, that is just neutral, just here's life, or to honor the Lord, or to serve others, or it could be used for good things. Here's what's going on in my life, or here's something I found out, and I'd recommend you should try it too. Great. Or rejoicing in God. Man, my kid is cute. Thank the Lord. Great. Okay, fine. Put your Please put your pictures of your kids out there. The question is, what is my motive? Is it to let you know more about me and draw attention somehow to how I'm better, wiser, funnier, smarter than you? Is it not, or, or is it to honor others? Is it seeking to create an impression about myself that may not even be reality? but an impression, to leave you with an impression about me that is a boasting, that I want you to think this way about me. Jesus wasn't promoting in some inappropriate, selfish way. He was drawing people to the Father. But he emptied himself. He didn't inappropriately boast. But Philippians 2 says that he emptied himself, that he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. Why? Because he loved others. Jesus came emptying himself because he loved us. That's the motive. It's not boasting is bad. It's boasting is not love. And so Jesus doesn't sinfully boast because he's not a sinner because he loves others. And so he will take a lower form because he loves others. And he wants to communicate the love of the Father. And he loves me and he loves you. That's the motive. That's why he takes a low road because he came to give his life for us. He left his reputation in the hands of the Father. Jesus didn't sort of try to create. He, he pursued us. He left his reputation. The Bible says he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. He, he let that go, became man, left the glory of heaven, fully God and fully man, to save us. In our relationships, the love of Christ shows up sweetly when we boast in him and when we seek to prefer others, love others, honor others, when we have an others orientation, when we celebrate God's work in others, when we thank others, encourage others, recognize others without promoting ourselves. This is love. Love doesn't boast. It's not a pompous windbag. And pompous windbag can be an expression of something that's very subtle and very quiet. It doesn't have to be loud. It is not arrogant. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not arrogant. It literally means to be puffed up. Puffed up. Roman, I mean, First uh, Corinthians 8 says, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't think of myself as arrogant. I think of, er- I think of other people as arrogant. And there's a certain personality type that often we associate with arrogant. 
the very fact that I would confess that to you reveals my arrogance, by the way. <laughs> reveals my arrogance. That, that, that that's a category for someone else. This is what helped me understand this, that arrogant means puffed up. So it just means to be full of myself. Full of myself. That's arrogant. It's not a personality tri- type. It's not a, it's not a cocky person necessarily a certain kind of walk and a certain kind of presenting themselves. Loud, brash, braggart. That kind of a deal. It's just being full of ourselves when we focus on ourselves rather than others. That's the Corinthian lifestyle. They are puffed up rather than others-focused. But see, Jesus is others-focused. Philippians 2 says, He humbled Himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Why? Why did He do that? Because of His love for us, the entire motivation of Jesus' actions are an expression of love. Love for His Father and love for those He's saving. He comes in love, and that's the whole point. That's the whole contrast. It's not that necessarily that only arrogance is bad because it's a breaking of a rule. It's arrogance is self-focused rather than others-focused, so it's not loving. And Jesus is the ultimate lover of people. Gives Himself. Pays the price. Jesus humbles Himself, and arrogant people attack Him. Jesus is the recipient of others' arrogance. Those who mock Him, those who scorn Him, those who crucify Him, those who judge Him, those who hate Him, those who put themselves up against God. That is arrogant. He humbles Himself, receives the arrogance of others because He's loving us and dying in our place and giving Himself for us. His humility is not just merely gentle Jesus, meek and mild, and so humility good, arrogance bad. His humility is an expression of love. We must see that. His humility is an expression of His love for us, His care for us, His affection for us, His putting us uh, above His own suffering. It's love. And now He's saying, having received that love, we're to turn and not act arrogantly to others but to act loving in the same way that Jesus loved us. The Corinthian church is just drenched in arrogance. And so they are divided. Paul has to say to them in chapter 4, you know, what do you have that you did not receive? You guys are boasting about so much stuff in Corinth. Paul just says, okay, name one thing you have that wasn't given to you. And that just kind of cuts to the chase. Uh, Not my salvation. Not anything. I don't have breath in my lungs if it's not for God. He's, he's speaking to them to, to wake up and see what God has done for them. It's not arrogant. Verse, in chapter 12, he talks about the eye can't say to the hand, I have no need of you. That's arrogant. When one gift in the church, especially a prominent gift, especially a prominent person, especially a well-known person in the life of the church, cannot say to another person they are not needed. Or a person who's very involved in the church couldn't say that to a newer person that may not be, you know, that's, that's new, that's not in the, the life of the church yet or something like that. That's arrogance. Love says, I need you in, in, the, in the biblical way. I need you. You need me. We need one another. That's love. That's love. And lastly, we'll wrap up on this one today. We'll finish this next week. But love is not Rude. It's patient, kind, does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant. Love is not rude. Rude means to act shamefully, to act disgracefully. 
You know, I don't think Paul has in mind here, well, the Corinthians got together for dinner and somebody let a burp slip out and, whoa, let's get a verse on that one. I wouldn't recommend that at the community group dinner, I mean, but, hey, if it happens, it happens. But, I mean, I don't think that's what he has in mind here. This is what I think he has in mind. Look back at chapter 11. Listen to the Corinthians' Lord's Supper. They did their Lord's Supper around a meal. And uh, this is what he says, 1120. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper. Is It is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead and with his own meal. One goes hungry. Another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What I what shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. So here's what's happening. They're coming together. Some people are wealthy, some aren't. And they don't have like a potluck or whatever you want to call it where everybody shares. Those who have food, they eat. They go ahead and eat. And then people come and they're hungry. They don't have anything to eat. And you see, Paul says that's despising the church, that you wouldn't share with folks who don't have enough to provide for food. And then some are drinking, some are drinking too much and actually getting drunk. And so there's just not a care for other people. There's a feast and drunkenness for some people, and some don't have anything to eat. And, and Paul is, that, that's rude. Why? Because they're not thinking about others in that. They're not communicating honor, care, and respect, especially to the most vulnerable, those who can't provide for their own food. Those are the folks that Paul says in chapter 12, it's the weaker members that should be given special honor. They should be eating first, probably. They should be cared for first, but they are being excluded. See, in the Corinthians, the haves are not treating the have-nots kindly, and that's rude. The people with prominent gifts, which they thought tongues was the prominent gift, they're probably looking down on others because the hand doesn't need the foot. So whatever the gifts are, every church can come up with their own, this is the gift. So whatever the gifts are, those people are looking down on people that don't have it. And so there's certain marginalized people. And so they're not treated with the same respect. Probably everybody likes the rich people. Oh, they're great. Everybody likes the guy who can speak in tongues or whatever the other gifts are, the prominent gifts in that church. But there's other people that are being marginalized. And here's how Jesus was. Jesus interacted with marginalized people. Uh, tax collectors who were hated, they weren't marginalized because they were poor. They were rich, but they got rich off their own people, and so they were hated. Prostitutes, the poor, those who suffered illnesses, uh, the blind, the lame, those who were ex- uh, those who were uh, marginalized because they had leprosy or something like that, they couldn't interact with others. Children who were better uh, seen and not heard in that culture. And here's what Jesus does: when there are people that are marginal in the community, he doesn't treat them rudely. He runs to them. He gravitates to them. So the disciples are saying, hey, we don't have time for the kids. Get the kids on out of here. This is Son of God here, God in the flesh. And Jesus says, I'd like to see the kids. Bring them to me. Puts them on his lap, blesses them. Jesus Jesus eats with sinners and tax collectors. Jesus goes to Zacchaeus' house and has a celebration with all the tax collectors. The Corinthians, on the other hand, say some people are in based on what they have or what their gifts are, and the in people will look down on the out people. And he's saying that's rude, that's shameful. That's not the way it's supposed to be in the church. Love is not rude. And so that's a very different picture, isn't it? 
It's not a, a person with poor manners, though manners are good. Courtesy is really kind of love in action in small things. I'm not opposed to courtesy. But the, I think what he's talking about here is something much bigger. It's including everyone. It's not treating people shamefully, disgracefully, rudely. You know, Jesus never treated me rudely and never treated you rudely. In the midst of our sin, when we were very rude to God, he didn't respond with rudeness. He died for our rudeness. When we excluded others, Jesus died for the, for us and in, in, in our arrogance. When we were boasting, Jesus died for our boasting. When we were impatient, it's got to happen now. Jesus died for our impatience. He was treated as though he was unkind. He was treated as though he were rude. He was treated as though he were a sinner because he was taking our sins upon himself. That's love. That is love. It's not only love that he acted this way, that he was patient, he was kind, he did not envy. It's not only love that he acted this way, but it's love that he died for those who don't act this way so that he can change us into those who increasingly do act this way. So thankful that Jesus didn't treat me this way, but he treated me with love and treated you with love, and he's our hope to be able to love others. The only way that we can increasingly grow in love for others is to start where Paul started in saying, I knew nothing but Christ and him crucified. And when we get to 13, he knew everything about Jesus, or let me, he didn't know everything, but he knew a lot about Jesus. But when we get to this chapter, what he's wanting them to get is the love of Jesus. Wanting them to see, I knew Christ and him crucified. And so that's changed everything about how I think about God. It's not just a religious checklist to check off and make myself good enough to be accepted. That'll lead to boasting. It's not just a moral plan that I can handle. It's not just acts of niceness, kindness that I can feel good about. It is coming and, and it is seeing that I need a Savior and that that Savior expressed his love for me in the cross and resurrection so that I could be a new person. This kind of heart of love happens as we know Jesus more, as we encounter him in the scripture, as his spirit changes our hearts. Some of us in the room may feel convicted today, and one of the ways we might respond, God might be calling us to respond, would be just repentance. We're going to pray for folks here in a minute. We're going to sing and pray for folks. But, you know, part of the ministry time be great to receive prayer. But another thing might be I need, maybe I need to go to someone. Maybe there's someone I haven't been patient with. Parents, maybe we've been impatient with our kids. Kids, maybe you've been impatient with your sibling or your parents. And I, and I need to say, Lord, I, I want to be more like you, and I have not reflected you to someone else. And I ask you, go to that person and ask their forgiveness. Please forgive my impatience. Please forgive my rudeness. Please forgive my arrogance. I'm not thinking about you. I'm thinking about me. Please forgive my envy. I haven't even been showing excitement at this great thing that's happening in your life. I've been wanting it to be me instead, and so I've been distant rather than loving. We need to repent and turn and get things right with others, starting with God and then with others. And then here's the thing. I think God wants to change our hearts, wants to change my heart so that we express. We see his love. We see him as loving. And that changes our perspective as we see God not as a taskmaster, but as a loving Savior who is holy and gracious both, who is holy and loving both, who is holy and merciful both. 
um, and we see his love, that begins to change us from the inside. But sometimes we're just not really feeling that or experiencing that, and we're still called to express love in those times. I came across something just yesterday, um, by, or maybe it was this last night or this morning, I don't remember. I just came across something by C.S. Lewis from Mere Christianity, and this is what he wrote about loving others. Though natural likings, and he's talking about liking people, though natural likings should normally be encouraged, it would be quite wrong to think that the way to become loving is to sit trying to manufacture affectionate feelings. The rule for all of us is perfectly simple. Do not waste your time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. As soon as we do this, we find one of the great secrets. When you are behaving as if you love someone, you'll presently come to love them. The worldly man treats certain people kindly because he likes them. The Christian trying to treat everyone kindly finds himself liking more and more people as life goes on including people he could not have even imagined himself liking at the beginning. What he's saying is, even if I don't feel love, I can act in faith, in asking God to help me all the way, in patience, kindness, humility, and not arrogance, not rudeness, but love. As I begin to step out and love people, things change. My heart changes. And he says some Christians find themselves, as they go on, beginning to like more and more people as life goes on. That's a sign of maturity. Here's how it works in our culture. The older you get, I'm getting older, the older you get, people tend to grow kind of cynical and liking less people. And you can meet some people that are well advanced in years that hardly like anybody. You know? Um, and you can also make people that are well advanced in years that because of the love of God, they find themselves liking more people, loving more people. And now he's using the word like here, which I think is really good because it's not just a grit my teeth. It's like I actually have a heart for someone. Can I say I like more people now than I did last year? Or can I say I see more problems with everyone around me the better I get to know them? Can we say the longer I'm in this church, the fewer people I like because I touch their humanity? Or can we say I touch their humanity and wow, they're more messed up than I thought, but so am I. But I'm finding myself liking them better. You know, once I got into the community group about a year ago, I kind of liked one person and thought the rest of them were kind of nuts. But guess what? It's a year later. Now I like six people in the group, and God's helping me with the other six. We're making some progress here. God is turning my heart. And now I'm sitting down with dinner with someone. I'm getting together with them thinking, wow, two years ago I can't even imagine this. Now God's knitting our hearts together, and we want to be together, and we're, it's an amazing thing. That starts by taking a step of faith and expressing the love of God to another person. And we may find that as we step out in faith, looking to the Lord with a repentant heart, thanking God for his love for us, trying to grow in our understanding of his love for us and taking steps, we might just find that he changes us as we walk along the way, as we love one another. May God help us to know his love first and foremost. And as that love floods our lives, may we turn and treat others the same way. Let's pray. God, we thank you as we close this session, this sermon, this worship gathering. We thank you for the love that you have shown us, Lord. It's an amazing love that we have experienced in Jesus Christ. Your gospel is overwhelming. Your goodness and your love is beyond our understanding. It's beyond our description. 
And today, Lord, we just want to communicate how grateful we are. We pray that you would open our eyes more and more to your love. We pray that you would fill our hearts more and more with your love. And we pray we would turn in love to other people. Lord, we also pray that even where we don't feel love, we pray that we could take steps of faith to forgive others, to care for others, to take an interest in others, to ask questions of others, to prefer others, and that as we do, we would find you changing our heart as we walk along in faith. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit www.gracechurchfrisco.org. 